Hi, this is co-host Patrick Baird. I'd like to tell you about my new military science fiction novel, The Nowhere Navy. Decorated officer Frank Ortega reaches his final duty station. An aging Navy Corvette, the ISS Persistent, stationed in a solar system on the furthest edge of colonized space. Located light years from the war front against the mysterious enhancers, the Persistent is crewed by a motley collection of fleet rejects and raw recruits. Life aboard the ship remains slack and unmilitary until they receive a shocking signal. Most of the rest of the fleet was destroyed in a major battle. The Persistent is left alone to guard its solar system against the inevitable invasion they have no chance of stopping. The Nowhere Navy is available on Amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback formats. Thank you. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 33 of Unknown Orbits, Tangent by F.L. Clark. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitzey. Today's story is the one story by author F.L. Clark that received any degree of critical approval, Tangent, which was published in the World Fantasy Quarterly, Summer 1949. I think it's more well-known for its radio adaptation. There was another science fiction show called X Means Unknown, and it was on there, though it might be because Vincent Price was the main character in it. Vincent Price, I didn't realize that. I think I read somewhere that it was more well-known for the radio adaptation, and it's probably because the magazine World Fantasy Quarterly went out of business shortly after he published his story. So it was one of those magazines that came and went pretty quickly in the late 40s, early 50s. But the radio adaptation was where it's most well known for. Did you mean you didn't know that Vincent Price was big in early radio? I didn't know that. So it makes sense because he's got that golden voice. I could completely visualize him doing a science fiction or a horror radio program. There is one that I have to get a copy of it for you. I think it's Suspense. Very famous. Really? Where he's a shopkeeper on a very tiny island that gets a shipment like once every three months or something. And then suddenly the ship stops coming and the island's population descends into chaos and cannibalism. I heard about this one. This was... It only aired once, and because yes. the, the whole subject of cannibalism, apparently, it was almost like the beginning of the modern zombie myth, where it depicted normal humans eating other humans. Yeah, I think the network's biggest problem was that they wanted any cannibalism to be in a negative light. Or to be presented as it traditionally was presented as non-white people doing the cannibalism. Yes. This was a island of very nice New Englanders, normal, quote-unquote, nice white New Englanders descending into cannibalism, and that was too much for the time. That was That was way too far ahead of its time. But Vincent Price has a lovely long speech in there. I mean, not speech speech. I mean, uh, exposition. And every once in a while, you're hearing the thunk, thunk, 
funk and it turns out he's butchering his neighbor as he's talking. That's awesome. Yeah. Kind of odd because his movie, The Last Man on Earth from 1964, was one of the early precursor to George Romero's zombie movies. Oh, yes. An adaptation of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. We talked about Richard Matheson in a previous episode. So very interesting. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. I think it was when I was doing some research for the zombie episode that we did that I ran across that. That was the first depiction of white Americans eating other white Americans, and it was very controversial. And for the radio enthusiasts out there, the Association of Radio Manufacturers had a prize, I think it was called the Silver Vacuum Tube Award, and it was for like the best radio play. The Tangent adaptation was nominated. So just to give a little bit of background on F.L. Clark, there's a great deal of fog and uncertainty about a lot of aspects of his life. He was one of these people that moved around a lot and was somewhat mysterious. He doesn't have a accepted date of birth. It's generally agreed it was probably February of 1922. He was from Belgium, Wisconsin. Not the northern Belgium, Wisconsin, but the southern Belgium, Wisconsin. There's more than one Belgium, Wisconsin. Which I had no idea. I know we have two Romes. When you come up to visit me in Door County, you literally drive past both Belgiums. Both of them? Okay. You've never, never made the connection in your head that there are two Belgiums in Wisconsin. No, I remember reading one of the signs consistently. Right. I must just pass the, the other. The bigger Belgium is the southern Belgium. Okay. That's, that's where Clark was possibly born, but definitely for most of his life, he grew up in southern Belgium, Wisconsin. Not called southern Belgium, just Belgium. I remember reading an article on him around the mid-80s somewhere, and I have a feeling you're about to tell me that everything in the article is unsubstantiated. You know, for our younger listeners, it was very common for people to conflate and distort and outright lie about things like where people were born or dates of birth or different aspects of their early life because you had a lot of illegitimate children. It was in a day when illegitimacy was really a scandal. So a young woman would get pregnant out of wedlock and she would either give her child up to adoption, often to a family member. A girl would get pregnant and she would give her daughter to her sister and her sister would raise that child as her own which was what happened with John Lennon. John Lennon grew up with someone he thought was his sister and was actually his mother. We've all heard those stories of celebrities discovering that there's some actor at the same time. Putting pieces together with Clark, you guess that probably something like that was the case with him, where he was the product of an illegitimate birth, was raised with the Clark family, whether that's his actual family or an adopted family, it's not clear, in Belgium, Wisconsin. He did graduate from high school, briefly attended East Ladoga University, which is a little ways south of Belgium in Wisconsin, which is now a defunct college. It never uh, reopened after World War II, but he did attend for almost two years. Allegedly, he attended the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota Bloomington, but that's not clear. Going to the article I read... I remember something about him going to business school, but they glossed that over. Right. So this would have been in the the late 1930s, just before World War II. So he dropped out. He had an interest in science fiction. There's evidence that he may have submitted to John W. Campbell and been rejected and maybe a few other magazines of the day. Yeah, I think in 
John Campbell's collected letters. There's an angry letter that is, it's unsigned, but it's attributed to him. So what was he angry about? Did he mention H.L. Clark by name? Uh, I only know this from accounts of it. It was just described as a horribly angry, vaguely threatening letter. From John W. Campbell. No, 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 to John W. Campbell. Oh, from H.L. Clark. Oh, yes. That ties in exactly with his later life and his antisocial personality. I want to get a copy of those volumes, but they are really expensive. Okay. So that makes sense, because as you're going to find out as we get into his later life, he was a deeply antisocial individual. So along comes World War II, and H.L. winds up joining the Army, or he's drafted into the Army, it's not clear, in 1942 and apparently spent most of his time during the war on Kwajalein Island in the Pacific. I know that island. Do you do? Yes, one of the private space... What do we call it? SpaceX. Agencies? SpaceX, yeah. Well, it was launching there. Okay, yeah. that's one of their launch sites. But during World War II, that was very much a backwater, I do believe. So if you've ever seen the movie Mr. Roberts, which is about a supply ship in a remote island in the Pacific Ocean during World War II, that's kind of the environment that he was in, a real backwater, far away from the action. And it's unclear what exactly it was that he did in the Army because he would change his story over the years depending on who he was talking to. Bear in mind, one of the big issues for science fiction writers because of the war is that very many of them wound up not serving with distinction or serving at all. Like Robert Heinlein was previously a commissioned officer in the Navy. So he thought that once the war rolled around that the Navy would come begging for him to come back and would reinstate him as a captain and he would be commanding in battle. And he wound up being administrator of a research laboratory in Philadelphia for the duration. And he was very embittered by that. All I'm going to say is my impression of having read the wartime section in one of our favorite books. Is it just called Astounding? The story of Astounding magazine. After reading the wartime section, I'm left with the impression that there were an awful lot of science fiction writers that desperately wanted everyone to believe that they were desperate to get in the war and fight the enemy. I think Asimov was probably the only one that was honest enough to say, yeah, I'm, I'm good here. And he was a chemist, so he had a skill. He wound up working in the lab with Heinlein. Al Sprague de Camp actually was in the army and served with that lab. But Clark would tell different stories about his service, kind of like L. Ron Hubbard, who also oh, yeah. had, had a disastrous naval career in World War II and would often lie about that and how he sank ships and torpedoed ships to the bottom and all of that sort of thing. F.L. Clark at various times claimed that he was either a frogman who operated out of Kwajalein Island on a submarine and would blow up beach obstructions of the many landings that Marines did in the Pacific. Which is kind of like saying you're a secret agent in Kansas, doesn't it? Yes. He said that his submarine was a special OSS submarine that was homeported in the Kwajalein Island, and he was a frogman that was transported to do these commando raids. He also claimed to have been in charge of security for the atomic bomb, he claimed that when the bombs were bought from the United States and they were warehoused, actually on a different island altogether. So that was a story that was easily disproved. But he claimed that they were on Kwajalein Island and that he had that very high-level security clearance and was in charge of security for the 
atomic bombs. So I'm thinking he's one of those guys that just went around making up, yeah. oh, I have Alpha Delta security. You've never heard of it before. Right. So as you can imagine, throughout the years, as he would tell these stories to others, including, in some cases, actual veterans who served you know, with distinction during the war, it rubbed people the wrong way. And the truth of the matter is, again, this is an area we don't have complete details on, but he was actually kicked out of the army in 1944, prior to the end of the war. The reasons why he was kicked out are unclear. There's some people who have heard him say that he was kicked out for misappropriating supplies, but then there are other people who with no evidence behind it, say that it was something involving a nurse. So anyway, by the end of 1944, he was a civilian again, and... Presumably back to Belgium? Back to Belgium, Wisconsin, we assume, and we don't know what he did in the few years from his departure from the Army to when he showed up in New York in 1948, claiming that he had just graduated from the Carlson School, trying to get a job in advertising, which he was unsuccessful at. And he started writing science fiction stories. Shortly after that came one of the defining moments of his life when he wrote and had published the infamous story, The Eyes of Judy Mars, published Um. in the April 1953 issue of True Tales of Science Mystery. Was that made into a movie then, The Eyes of Laura Mars? That's a very interesting and tangential, using the word tangent, tangential question. Because The Eyes of Laura Mars was a 1978, or not 1979, erotic thriller directed by John Carpenter. Because of the success of the movie Halloween, was given the chance to direct a high-budget Hollywood production. It was not called The Eyes of Laura Mars when it was in production. It was actually called The Boutique Murders. And it was from a screenplay that had made the rounds in Hollywood. It was very hot property. And because he was the hot director of the time coming off of Halloween, he was given this choice assignment. But because it was his first Hollywood production, things did not go well at all. At one point, Carpenter was so frustrated with the process that he remembered this story, the eyes of Judy Mars, the infamous eyes of Judy Mars story, and subtly changed the name of the movie to the eyes of Laura Mars as a fuck you to Ah. the studios, hoping that after the movie was released, that the connection would get out and it would prove to be a huge embarrassment for the studio. So story-wise, there's no connection. No, no. It's just his thing. Okay. And as you'll see in a minute, You've read The Eyes of Judy Myers, right? No, I haven't. I have. And let me just say that it is controversial, to say the least, for a very good reason. So the story of The Eyes of Judy Mars is about an earth man who falls in love with a Martian woman. It's not a very complex or thrilling story. She arrives on Earth. He meets her. He's totally fascinated by her. She's beautiful. Are you saying it's kind of like a Bradbury story? Yeah, it kind of feels like that a little bit at the beginning. And halfway through or towards the last third of the book, he finds out that she's actually a Martian. It's sort of the miscast lovers sort of a story, but with a science fiction twist. Is it like a sex out of marriage? Why is it controversy? Well, 
the reason it's controversial is the twist ending of the story is that he runs into another Martian woman. So the woman he falls in love with is short and slender, very beautiful. She's like an Audrey Hepburn sort of a looking okay. woman, but short and slender. And he runs into this Martian woman, and she's obviously much bigger and more developed, let's just say, okay. than the woman he's in love with. And he finds out that the Martian woman that he's in love with is actually six years old. I would see that as a problem? No. Up to this point in the story, you know, it's a little risky, but what made the story damning and super controversial is that he basically shrugs his shoulders and says, eh, I still love her anyway. And he goes ahead with the relationship with the six-year-old Martian girl. And the editor was all right with that. Well, so the editor of the magazine, Harvey Pegerson, yes, he accepted the story. I think Harvey, I don't know this, but I'm guessing that Harvey thought that having a controversial story in a magazine might spur circulation. It was a very... True Tales of Science Mystery was published by a publishing house that mainly did like True Detective and True Romance magazines, pulp magazines, with very lurid covers, you know, pictures of women being tied up and having guns pointed at their head and that sort of thing. And so in that environment, Harvey Pegerson thought, well, this would be okay. This isn't too different than some of the stuff that we're publishing in their sister magazines. But he gravely miscalculated because there was enormous controversy once the story was published. He wound up getting fired very shortly afterward, and the magazine itself collapsed a few months later, and they had to rename a few of their true mystery and true romance magazines. They had to change the whole company and everything, because it was such a scandal that they were basically peddling pedophilia in 1953. I won't go on about this, but it reminds me a little bit of how the Galaxy novel series was bought by a different publisher, a publisher who published naughty books and things. Right. And the same thing happened. Every title for a while in the Galaxy novel series was naughty. And they literally bought a few known titles like Nightmare Planet or something and turned it into Planet of the Women and things like that. Right, with lurid covers. Yeah. Galaxy as a magazine was not known for its lurid covers, but I think their paperback novels were. So that pretty much brought Mr. Clark's career to a screeching halt. He already had not had much success in getting stories published in Galaxy, as we just spoke about, or Astounding, or even Planet Stories. There's that quality step down. Okay, Fantastic Universe. Well, how about Universe? Uh, how about yeah, Tales that, of the Black Cat? He was, a, I guess you could call it a bottom dweller in the, the magazines of the day, the ones that were paying a quarter of a penny a word. It's unclear what he did to supplement his income because he certainly wasn't getting well off as a writer at the time. But the eyes of Judy Mars, that put a halt to his science fiction career at that point. Eventually, he disappeared from New York and reappeared in Belgium, Wisconsin, southern Belgium, Wisconsin. There was a story that I know I read when he was in New York. There was an incident with the publisher of Amazing Stories, Ray Palmer. Oh, yeah, the Ray Palmer story. Oh, I almost forgot about that. Before we transit back to bucolic Belgium, Wisconsin, we should probably revisit a few of the things that happened while he was in New York. Ray Palmer is a great one. Tell a Ray Palmer story. As I recall... 
he was visiting the editorial offices, and he had a strong disagreement with Palmer. Now, Palmer was not 100% science fiction. He wrote a lot of different pulp for a lot of different pulp magazines over the years. Yeah, if there was anyone who was generically pulp, it was him, and he became a science fiction writer. Right. So I think this led to a lot of his editorial decisions in the magazine that were controversial, and apparently he rejected F.L. Clark's story. It's an easy-to-remember name, if I just remember for a second. Oh, Fear of Heights. Fear of Heights. Okay. Because what he ended up doing is he made uh, a nearly successful attempt to hang Ray Palmer out his office window by his ankles. When he was arrested, he claimed he was just making an editorial point about the story. <laughs> yeah. The other famous story is that he claimed at various points that he had been present when Jack Parsons, now Jack Parsons, for anyone who doesn't know, was a literally a rocket scientist who was a member of Robert Heinlein's inner circle in the 1940s. He was also an occultist. He was a very strange figure, but he was indeed involved in the development of rocket science early on in the days of early rocket science. He blew himself up in uh, 1952. F.L. Clark would claim later that he was present at that moment, that he knew what happened, but he would never tell anybody what, quote-unquote, really happened. There are some very dark rumors about Jack Parsons, which... He was into, like, black magic with sex orgies. Yes. That is not an exaggeration. And this is why... JPL is not called the Jack Parsons Laboratory, but is now called the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Yes. And Heinlein was very good friends with Jack Parsons. He was part of his social circle. And this was the beginning of the deterioration of the relationship, if there ever was a relationship between Heinlein and Clark, because Clark would be sort of hinting that malignant forces had somehow been involved in this explosion. And Heinlein was quite upset about that. There's a great quote in Hot Tub Time Machine where one character saying to the doctor, well, you know how everyone has that friend who's an asshole? Uh, that's our asshole. Yeah. And that was F.L. Clark. F.L. Clark was a, it's an asshole. As a matter of fact, I've got a quote here from Isaac Asimov. Isaac Asimov described him as the most despised and also the most pitied author in science fiction. Plus, he usually smelled bad. <laughs> But he was always there. The weird thing about F.L. Clark is for four or five years, he was right at the heart of science fiction at one of its golden moments of history, the early 1950s. He was around. He was socializing. Yeah, he was the guy that showed up to the party without an invitation often. Um, Almost like a Z-League. Yeah, he was, he was kind of like a Z-League character, only if like Z-League was a malignant, antisocial... Alcoholic. Alcoholic, <laughs> who would usually wind up getting thrown out of the party for one reason or another, for some form of misbehavior. He was, I don't want to say an important figure, but he was a present figure. That sounds fair. Another story is he was briefly hired to edit Planet Stories in 1951, but his story that he published under a pen name, the Horny... Tentacles of Beetlejuice, because he was the editor, it slipped by the publisher and got printed. It was more sexually explicit. By modern standards, it wasn't that explicit. I think the tentacles were just rubbing women at certain parts of their body. So it, it got published, and he was immediately fired. 
So she only lasted, I think, two issues. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but he ended up marrying one of his cousins, didn't he? As I said before, at this time, there was a certain amount of ambiguity in some cases about the parentage of people. So, yes, it's widely acknowledged that the woman he married in 1954 was a cousin of his, whether it was a first cousin or a second cousin, not clear. But she was under the age, she was like 16 years old. That means there was a 16-year difference between the two? Yes. It's kind of a lot. Well, yeah. And we're beginning to detect a theme here with Mr. Clark. But apparently it was not considered controversial in the small town of Belgium, Wisconsin. Maybe there was a lot of Clarks in that area at the time. So big enough family, it was not an unheard of thing for cousins to marry. Probably not much checking by the county. But she was 16. I don't know whether her parents gave permission or what it was, but there was that. But of course, at this point, he's he's a washed up writer. He was never able to get a job in advertising in Madison Avenue in New York. We don't even know what it was he was doing for a living when he was living in Belgium, Wisconsin. My recollection that he had like an ordinary small town job, hardware store or drugstore or something. Probably. He might have even been living with his parents. It's unclear. I didn't bother doing any research into when his parents might have died or anything like that. So anyway, so there he is. He's in Belgium, Wisconsin, probably on his way to a completely unremarkable life and death in a small town. But his life takes a turn in 1958 when he meets and falls in love with Belgian now, this is Belgium, the country, not Belgium, Wisconsin. Next to France. Yes, the European country. Belgian beauty queen, Adelgande Dam, a stunning brunette, statuesque. You know, you think of your, your classic 1950s bombshell. She fit those parameters perfectly. And it's not hard to figure out how a nearly 40-year-old man would have fallen in love with someone like that. So there was some immigration issues, apparently, and they wound up, he abandoned his wife, and they fled to Belgium. So he moved from Belgium, Wisconsin, to Belgium, Belgium. And at that point, within a few years, he, he rekindled his writing career. I don't know if that's good or bad, to be honest. Well, what mainly sustained him, he did a lot of different writing during this period, it's thought that he may have written pornography under some pen names. That's the rumor, and he himself, I think, claimed that at various points. But again, whenever he's telling you stories or telling you something, you always have to take it with a grain of salt. He was a total fabulist. I can't help but think if someone is telling you voluntarily, Hi, I write pornography. Don't you think that means the truth is worse than that? He was getting into the swinging 60s now in Europe, not in America. He's no longer in southern Belgium, Wisconsin. He's in a European capital in Belgium, whatever the hell capital of Belgium is. Is it Luxembourg? Is that is that it or is that a country? I have no idea. I don't know. I... All I know is that the country's slogan is gateway to France. <laughs> exactly. So here he is in Europe. He's writing pornography or claiming to write pornography he probably did the way his mind worked yeah I'm, I'm sure he did but no question about is he wrote for italian fumetti magazines you're gonna have to explain that to me 
fumetti magazines, they were kind of like Italian comic books. They started out as like uh, hard-boiled crime stories, and they graduated to like these pictorial comic books. They used photographs instead of illustrations. Some of them were illustrated like regular comic books, but a lot of them were photographs put together in a comic book form. I've seen that before with ordinary stories, nothing special or weird. It's apparently a thing they did in England. I remember there was a talk show that yeah. showed someone did it. And uh, National Lampoon did it as well. Yeah. So fumetti is kind of like manga. It's a generic term for Italian comic books. But just like manga does, they have their own unique conventions and styles and everything. But the main fumetti magazines and the ones that Clark wrote for were very lurid for the time. They were pushing the envelope of nudity and sex quite a bit even in the 1960s, he was writing erotic horror stories or erotic science fiction stories where women were being raped by robots or vampires had a, a harem and had sex orgies with their victims. It's very lurid stuff. That's one of the few things during that period of time that we can say with certainty was that he put his name on some of these Fumetti magazines. Well, uh, do I respect him more or less for being proud of it? Well, it was a living like I said, he wrote some other things besides fumetti and pornography, true crime, that sort of thing. The really interesting thing for me that came out of the whole fumetti experience is that, so there was one fumetti magazine in particular called La Senor Grande, which translates to the big boob. And it was obviously focused on women with large breasts. And interestingly, while he was writing for that magazine, his wife was posing in the magazine often quite naked. Oh. So there was this interesting relationship that was between the two where they were both writing and she was performing in exploitative outlets. Kind of like that director, oh, uh, hey, Jess, Jess Franco? Yeah, Jess Franco and his wife, Lena Romay. She actually, in the 1970s, wound up performing hardcore pornography in some of his movies. Certainly, I would think, would test your marriage. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, it's fair. <laughs> So he had kind of the same relationship with his wife, the Belgian beauty queen. And that continued on into the early 1970s. And that's when we start to lose track of him again. While we've been talking, I've been doing a little bit of Googling because you've really made me curious. And I found an interesting story here. I'll just summarize it. Apparently, he did show up in 1974 at a series of science fiction writers' doorsteps. He was pitching a new anthology to be called Unsafe Thoughts. The anthology was intended to be a collection of futuristic science fiction sexuality. That sounds a little bit like Dangerous Visions by Harlan Ellison. More sexy, I'm guessing. That would be something because the first two Dangerous Visions were... I remember one of the stories involved uh, women tied up in a barn like cows and a guy having sex with them. Oh, all right. That, that is like the one story out of that collection <laughs> that still sticks in my mind. And I read that probably 30 years ago. This does go on to say that the only known submission that he got for this collection was from Robert Heinlein. Which is both surprising and not surprising. I think at this point in his career, Robert Heinlein was putting a lot of sex in his work. Oh, yeah. Um, I Okay, I've read a lot of Robert Heinlein. Was this not the time that he wrote Stranger in a Strange Land? Was that the one that had I'm weird thinking, sex in it? 
I was thinking of Lazarus Long time travel where he has oh. sex with his mother. Yeah, okay. So if that's what Heinlein was writing at the time, that's not surprising. But there's bountiful evidence that Robert Heinlein absolutely hated F.L. Clark and had hated him since the early 1950s. So it's odd. But that ties into a little anecdote that I had ran into where an unnamed, allegedly fairly well-known science fiction writer claimed that he had been tricked into submitting something for this anthology and had decided that it was too dirty and he didn't want his name associated with it. And he spent years trying to contact Clark to either put a pen name on it or pull it from the anthology, and he couldn't get a hold of him. Because throughout the entire 1970s, F.L. Clark was a phantom. He would suddenly pop up at, like you said, people's doorsteps, or he would show up at a publisher's office, or he would suddenly show up at a science fiction convention, and nobody knew where he—nobody does. To this day, it's unclear where he lived during this period of time, whether he went back to Belgium, Wisconsin, who was in New York somewhere, some other place. And his wife was still in Europe, his beautiful Belgian beauty queen, actually had degenerated into doing pornography at this point in her career and died of a heroin overdose in 1976, I think. So he's a phantom. He's just, nobody can find him. Nobody can get a hold of him to serve him legal papers to sue him for holding on. And he did. For this anthology, he held on to the rights to these stories for over 10 years throughout the 1970s into the early 1980s. And all these writers were absolutely furious with him, wanting their stories back, having changed their mind in some cases about whether they wanted their names to appear on some of these dirty stories. And they couldn't even serve him legal papers to sue him to get it back. Unsafe thoughts never happened. There was no publisher that was willing to go forward with it. The fact that it was F.L. Clark that was the man pushing for it. Probably didn't help. Certainly probably doomed the project from the start. So when he apparently died in 1981... And that's a matter of uncertainty as well. I'm assuming he's not 103 years old now. His death was reported in 1981. So all of these stories to this day are still in legal limbo. Somebody has the copies of these stories. Whoever it was that still has legal right to his estate. Now, it was thought that maybe his first wife back in Belgium, Wisconsin, might have wound up. She's denied any knowledge or interest in his estate. It's like the great white whale of science fiction is this pornographic science fiction anthology that has some of the top names in science fiction of the 1970s attached to it that's floating around out there, and people are like waiting for it to just emerge someday. So obviously, many of these writers were very unhappy that suddenly this thing could just pop up out of nowhere and they would have their name attached to this. Like someone's going to open a closet, find a stack of manuscripts and contracts and say, we can make some money. Right. They may have been lost to time. That's probably more likely because there was an obituary in one of the New York newspapers that said that he was found dead in a cheap hotel in New York and, you know, cause of death unknown. So... There's that, but when people have tried to follow up on that, there was apparently a fire at the Apollo Records in New York City where six months' worth of 
death certificates were burned up, and his was among thousands of others that were lost. So there's no confirmation of that. There's no idea what his cause of death might have been. And of course, no one stepped forward to claim that they were his heirs or had his estate or anything like that. So that's just vanished into the mists of obscurity. Now, the interesting thing is that the eyes of Judy Mars became sort of like an underground punk rock um, influence sort of artifact. Okay. And, you know, in the 1980s, when you had sort of a gross out culture began to develop of explicit gory horror movies and bizarre sex movies drifting into the mainstream. The idea of having a science fiction story about a man who falls in love with a six-year-old Martian girl was kind of cool within a certain underground community. Fighting the establishment. Yeah, you know. And maybe the weirdest thing of all of F.L. Clark's life and career was that in 19... 92, Tangent was anthologized in Groff Conklin's anthology, Debatable Worlds of Science Fiction. And that was the last time that it ever appeared in print. It had been anthologized a few times before that, but it was heavily edited for some reason. The story, not the anthology. Yeah, the story. And it's unclear... If he was dead and he had no estate, where Conklin got not only the ability to publish it, but to alter it. I don't think the altering would have been too much of a problem. Well, it depends how much he altered it. That's been a mystery, and Ed Conklin was never able to, I think he passed away shortly afterwards, so was never able to explain how that showed up in the anthology and why it was strangely edited. Well, you know, it's not entirely implausible that he saw the story, he wanted to include it for whatever reasons, and said, there's no one left to sue me. Well, then why would they edit it? Why would they change the names of the characters and the surprise ending? Oh, I see your point. If it's known for the one thing, why? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. And at the same time, there was an underground comics version of The Eyes of Judy Mars done in 1989, I believe. I've been holding this back. Now that really is a tangent. (laughs) All right. Well, folks, that is it for our April 1st edition of Unknown Orbits. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitzey. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. guys from Milwaukee.